Well, good morning again, everybody. It's, uh, as I was sitting in, in the back there, it's, there's a few people that are still in their normal seats, but you guys have really changed it up today. It's kind of thrown me off. Don't know who to look over or look at this time around, so I like that. It's a good challenge. But I hope that your day is going well and that your week has been one that's been full of joy and praise as we kind of reflect on the last couple of messages. Um, you know, it's hard to believe that this is the last Sunday in July. The summer months just seem to fly by. And you already started kicking it into gear, getting ready for school stuff, and just you get these anxious feelings of being exasperated. You know, maybe you're, you know, there's a few people that are still off planning on some, uh, some trips this week and next and still trying to fit all that kind of stuff in as much as you can. And before you know it, we're into our fall season. You know, things seem to fly by so fast anymore. And it makes us long for those simpler times, times where you can maybe stay up at a cabin or go camping and just unplug for a while. And, you know, as I thought about kind of this opener this morning to kind of get our minds focused on the message and, and the heart of that, my, my mind went to simpler, simpler times of my youth in terms of just playing different games with the family. Games can be fun. One of the games that my kids have always loved is telephone, telephone. Uh, a game where you just, you know, you whisper a phrase or something into somebody's ear and then it's got to pass around through everybody. You get one chance to hear it, so you hope that they don't breathe heavily in your ear or tickle your ear or something like that. And sometimes it can be a success. Other times, especially my kids, like to tweak it and make it funny in some sort of way. I think it would be a, a fun game sometime to play with a group this size just to see what it turns out to be. But, you know, you think about this just kind of being a game at how well you can pay attention to details how well you're able to recount what you have heard. Sometimes in real life, you would have instances like if you're called to a trial to be a witness. Maybe some of you have had that role. You know, being a witness to something in this day and age is difficult. Anymore, everything is on the cell phone. And everybody's at the ready to take that video because you don't know if it's going to go viral or be something that would make me famous. You know, you almost, those types of people almost hope for something very cool or something tragic because that's what's going to make the news. That's what's going to make, make it for them. You know, and anymore, witnessing is difficult. They want video evidence. They don't take people at their word for what they say anymore. It's hard to verify in this day and age because of subjective truth. And truth is kind of what whoever wants to hear wants to believe. But, you know, with witnessing, as I have said time and time again, each and every week, we are all called to be witnesses what tr to, to what truly matters in this life, and that is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Today, we're going to look at the ascension and his final words that he gives to his disciples while he is here on earth. We're going to look at the end of Luke and then the first part of Acts, you know, we have not, we may not have witnessed Jesus physically on this earth, but we have witnessed his words. We have witnessed what he has done in our lives, and we listened to the mission that he has given to his disciples that we are to carry on as the church. 
You know, we think about what he has done and the important thing that that is in our life. So we're going to be at the end of Luke today in Luke 24. If you have like a little bookmark to flip back and forth, it's good to be ready for that. Starting in verse 15. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Flip over to Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Father, as we we read about your ascension and as we read about the mission that you have given to the disciples today, Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to your truth, to the understanding that we are all to be witnesses about what you have done on the earth and what you have done in our own lives, that you would help us to understand the importance to know this and to be able to recount what you have done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so... With both of these texts, obviously Luke is the author of both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Um, As we look at the end of Luke, it is kind of a summary format for the Gospel. When you compare it to the beginning of Acts, in the beginning of Acts, it's kind of setting up, it's introducing what he is going to be talking about a little bit more. There's a little bit more details concerning the ascension in the book of Acts. But, you know, when you think about where we've kind of come from, this sermon series that we've been going through, what has God done? We have journeyed through the Old Testament um, and talked over things that have been based off of Psalm 105, the things that the Israelites were told to remember, some big things, some monumental things that God has done in the history. And then we have kind of culminated this through the greatest thing that God has done by sending his son, Jesus, to atone for our sins as a voluntary sacrifice. We walk through the book of Luke, looking at the acts of Jesus, looking at his ministries, looking at his teachings. 
um, we're able to see the heart that God has for the people. We've seen his ministries. We've seen the mission that he has accomplished, the training that he has given to his disciples to carry on that mission, something that then passes down to us today as disciples, as the church, to continue to remember all that God has done in the same way that the Israelites were to remember. So now we come to the end of the series by looking at the ascension and the final words that Jesus gives his disciples while he's on earth. And when we look at the ascension that's kind of split in this way, there's two different aspects that we can see. First, when we look at the end of the gospel, it serves as the end of the story for Jesus here on earth. It kind of closes the book to this chapter, so to speak. But in Acts, it serves as the beginning of the story for the church, which continues on until Christ returns. The ascension, and just, I always tie it close together to the Pentecost because they happen one right after the other. These two things are so pivotal, pivotal for history, for the disciples, for us today as well. You know, Jesus ends his ministry on earth kind of in the same way that it began. You look at the incarnation, you look at the life of Jesus, even the death of Jesus, the resurrection and now the ascension, they are all marked by joy. You see how the disciples return to Jerusalem, praising God, joyfully being in the temple. We see that all throughout Jesus' life, this theme of joy. Now there's also some kind of fun connections that I'll make for you here um, within these patterns that Luke, is, in terms of how he is describing the person of Jesus. I think that this can add to our understanding and just really the confidence of who Jesus is and how scriptures flow together. You know, when we look at the end of Luke there, Jesus is seen raising his hands over the disciples. He is praying a blessing on them, a transference from heaven onto his disciples. He is acting as a priest in this capacity. Then as he ascends, it's very similar to Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2. It says, When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. You know, you look at how Jesus ascends. He is carried up to heaven like the prophet Elijah. And in our account of Acts, we learn that he will return to install his kingdom as the king. So we see references of Jesus being priest, prophet, and king. Our Lord and Savior fulfills all of these different roles as they're loosely being described within this section, something that will be further hammered out in the book of Hebrews, if you would want to spend some time in there. Understanding the roles that Jesus plays is important in terms of the testimony and the witness that the disciples would have of who he is and, who he will, or and what they will tell the people about him. So kind of moving on from this summary, we're going to spend the rest of our time in Acts, if you want to flip over there. Um, 
you know, when we move over to, to Acts, there's a first, in the first few verses, you see a little bit more of the summary, kind of addressing who the book is being authored to. Uh, there's some summary format uh, in terms of, you know, Luke saying, look, in the gospel, in the first book, I told you all about Jesus' ministry, everything that he has done. Um, and then in Acts, he's going to record how the church began and how the church got started. We see some summary in terms of how the apostles are still commanded and instructed by Jesus. Um, they will be instructed by the Holy Spirit after Jesus is ascended. And then it talks briefly about those 40 days in between when Jesus was resurrected and the ascension, how Jesus was continuing to train the disciples. 40, of course, being one of those numbers in the Bible. You have 40 years in the desert where the Israelites wandered. You had 40 years in the desert where Jesus is preparing for his ministry. And now 40 days, 40 days that Jesus was in the desert. 40 days now that Jesus is preparing the disciples for their ministry ahead of them. And he gives them this order to remain in Jerusalem until they receive the baptism of the Spirit. Now this is uh, a very important event that must happen for effective ministry something that passes down to us as believers as well. The Holy Spirit is a, a must in our lives. There's no getting around this. There's no belittling this. There's no cheapening this. Uh, there's no you know, changing the significance of the role that the Holy Spirit plays in the life of a believer. Now, obviously there is great debate about what he does or even the separateness of this baptism. You know, you think of the church history in terms of the Pentecostal movement and maybe your more traditional church understandings of the baptism of the Spirit and what that means. Now, we're not going to get into that today, perhaps in the coming months, but I just want to stress the importance of the baptism of the Spirit and how essential that is to the life of a believer. Otherwise, we're just caught doing things in our own strength, in our own power, and that's the wrong way to go about life. Now, for this statement, the key understanding is that the baptism of the Spirit would signify the beginning or the entrance to the Messianic kingdom. This is how the Jews would understand it. And there's a lot of references that point to this in the Old Testament. A couple of them in Isaiah. This is in Isaiah 32. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high... And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of the righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. In Isaiah 44, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call in the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. In Ezekiel 39, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore, and I will not hide my face anymore from them. When I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares 
the Lord God. And of course, probably the most famous one in Joel. Joel chapter 2. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. So within these texts, we can see how the understanding then of the baptism of the Spirit, the pouring out of the Spirit that's mentioned so frequently would lead to this next question that the disciples have in verse 6. Is it now, Jesus? Will you restore your kingdom to Israel now? You know, it's a natural question. The meaning of this question is purely political. They want his kingdom to come. It's something that they've wanted for the last three years. So this pouring out of the Spirit, this baptism of the Spirit talk is going to signify this. So we see how this is a natural response. But Jesus, he puts this query that's been on their minds for the last three years to rest. As he simply says, it's not for them to know the times or the seasons um, that the Father has fixed by his authority. It is not something that they need to focus on. It's not something that they need to worry about. Instead, Jesus redirects. He says that they would receive power in order to give their attention at being witnesses to the world. I think that this is difficult for us to hear at times because just like the disciples, we too can get focused on when the kingdom is coming and ask, is it going to be now, Jesus? I mean, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. How about now? Can you do it before the trials and tribulations get a little bit too intense so it can stay comfortable? I mean, we are to watch for it. We expect for it to happen. We wait for it. But we don't worry about it. As long as we have been given today, we have been given the opportunities to be sent with power to be his witnesses into this world. That is to be our focus. Not about who's in the president's office, not about whether the vaccine is the mark of the beast or things like that. We are to be focused on being his witnesses. And yes, that ties together that he is going to be coming back. But it's not something that we are to be worried about. God's got that by his authority. Focus on the day that you've been given. The disciples, they were now to be witnesses of the Messiah. That is their definite work. That's what they need to be focusing on. That is how they bear witness to the testimony of their master. Whatever else they become, whatever else they do, whether it's becoming an elder, a church planner, a theologian, a writer, all of those things are beneath this primary calling to be his witnesses. The early church, and to many degrees, the church today is supposed to be missions-focused. We are to be witnesses 
and responding to the Great Commission. We are to act on behalf of Jesus as the extension of his ministries to what he did and proclaimed here on this earth. It's to be guided and empowered by the Spirit to reach the ends of the earth. What we see here is a mission that's given to the apostles and then the power to do it. God empowers his disciples to accomplish his mission. He will give them power to speak, power to give an oral testimony, a witness to those around them, power to perform miracles, to have authority. And all of this would be for the sake of his kingdom, not their own vanity. As we look in verse 8, I also want you to notice the geographical regions. These regions speak about people groups or types of peoples. And this verse has always been used by different organizations as an initiative or a drive. You know, the Alliance has said in the past that we are an Acts 1-8 family. Um, you know, when, when we see how it is witnessing to Jerusalem, I've heard it described as it means that we are witnessing to people who are like us and close by us in proximity. Judea would be those who are like us but a little bit further away. Samaria, people who are close by but different from you. And then the ends of the earth is kind of a catch-all for those that are not like you but also far away from you. And within these regions, you have the understanding of, of the people that are within it and who they are talking about. So your Jerusalem, your Judeas, those would be maybe your religious people that rely on religion but not the relationship. Those that may, maybe have some understanding of the gospel or of Jesus or of the Bible. These were the focus of the Jews for the early church. The Samaritans, they would have a mixed religion. These would be the type of people that might have some Christian values but mixed in with some world systems, mixed in with some idolatry, maybe have a coexist bumper sticker on their car, things like that. Um, and then the ends of the world. This would be people that would have no vital religion at all, maybe tribalism. They might have some idolatry worshiping things like the earth or the sun, stuff like that. But even within these differences of the groups, each group would have different levels of knowledge. They would have different levels of understanding. They would also have different barriers, different obstacles. You know, religion is a tough barrier to overcome people that think they know everything versus a language barrier for somebody on the other end of the earth. You know, there's different things that you would have to overcome, but there's also consistency within what the disciples are supposed to be doing in terms of their witness. The gospel message, the witness, the testimony stays the same. The need that all of these people groups have for a savior stays the same. The charge for the disciples to go and be his witnesses stays the same. You know, when you think about it, to be his witness is an amazing responsibility, and it shouldn't be treated like a checklist. You know, when I encourage us each week to be a witness, to go and share the gospel message, I don't want you to come off thinking, it's like, okay, I got to make sure I talk to at least five people this week, and then I can be done. I mean, five people is a great goal to have, but it's with the wrong heart motive if that makes sense. You know, we need to compare ourselves to the apostles and the disciples a bit here. You know, the disciples have encountered the risen Lord. They have sat under his teachings for three years, and they are going because they have witnessed these things in their life. 
I don't want anybody to witness because I tell them to. That's the wrong reason. I encourage, I try to equip, I challenge us to move because many of us have been Christians for 20 plus years and probably can count on one hand how many times they've shared the gospel or who they have witnessed to. When it comes to witnessing, you are a witness because you are so moved by what Jesus has done for you. You are a witness because you understand the love of God, the nature of sin, his desire for none to perish, and the fact that he will use you as a means to spread the gospel message is something that should bring great awe and wonder to our hearts and minds. Understanding his divine plans, understanding his supremacy, his sovereignty. And many times we can have that type of feeling, like, wow, God wants to use me. And when you see him use you in those types of ways, it bolsters your faith even more. But there's a flip side to that as well. Because we're often attacked with, what if I say something wrong? So we stay quiet. I mean, what if I make a mistake? I don't want to fail, so we're silent. Well, let me ask you a question. Isn't staying silent still a form of failure? Because that person still hasn't heard the gospel message. And you might be the only Christian that that person has contact with. Those opportunities we have to be on the lookout for. Again, look at the track record of the disciples in the Gospels. How many mistakes did they make? How many times did they need corrected? How many times did they fail? They had to learn from working in their own strength and power versus being empowered by the Spirit. You know, when we witness, we don't do it in our own power, in our own strength. We are strengthened by the Holy Spirit and we rest upon Him. And that should be comforting to us. Because if it's just me, I mean, I root for the wrong teams. I'm boring. I'm sarcastic. But if it's God through me, I've seen the wonders. I've seen miracles. I've seen healings. I've seen amazing things of people being released from the bondages of sin. And it's something that just drives you closer when you experience that, when you let go of your control and your hesitancy and you allow God to work through you. Jesus assures his disciples here, you will receive power. Expect it. Wait for it. Look for it. It's a message of hope that he gives his disciples. It's within this message that he is taken up in the cloud into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Now this cloud, when we think of imagery, oftentimes heaven is portrayed with angels playing harps sitting on clouds. Fanciful. It plays into this playful myth type of curiosity that Hollywood has. But when we take the imagery back to what the Bible shows us, the imagery of a cloud, you can't help but connect this to the Shekinah glory 
of God, the dwelling presence of God, the cloud that comes down on the mercy seat that fills the tent of meeting in Exodus 40, the cloud that overshadows Jesus, Moses, and Elijah on the mountain of transfiguration, The cloud is the visible symbol of the presence of God in the Bible. The cloud that led the Israelites in the desert by day. The awesome glory of God. And he is going to return in that same way. I'm sure Clayton can quote this verse for me in 1 Thessalonians 4. We talked about that last week. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And then in Revelation 1, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Even so, let it be so. The Ascension closes the chapter on Jesus' earthly ministry, and it starts the ministry of the church. It is a smooth transition where they then go and they pray and, and they prepare themselves and they wait to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. This passage speaks about the Ascension of Jesus. It is a confirmation of him being exalted by the Father to be seated at the right hand. It concludes the resurrection appearances over these 40 days, and it's a part of the foundation for the Christian mission, for the Christian church. It precludes the sending of the Spirit, and it gives a promise of his return. The ascension is such an amazing moment in history. It gives such great joy and hope for us as believers. He is going to prepare a room for them. They are promised the Spirit to be sent to them. They are given a task to accomplish and a future promise of the hope that Jesus will return. And as believers, I think that we can glean some of these same promises and hope from the passage. That we can understand that we have a greater mission than just coming to church to occupy space. That we can expect the power of the Holy Spirit to be upon us. I mean, we claim that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, but what does that mean? Maybe we need to dive into that deeper to be able to articulate what we mean when we say that. While also understanding that this passage gives a warning. We don't know the day or the season of his return, but his kingdom is coming. And it instills in us this imminence, this fervency to go, to be his witnesses. That we shouldn't squander the moments that we have been given. Because we have only been given today. We're not promised tomorrow. So what can we do for the kingdom of God today? Our hope, our love is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He ascended into glory. What will our witnesses be about him? I really want us to think about that over the next couple of weeks, understanding our own testimonies, our own witnesses, and what we are called to do. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you today, we are so grateful for your plans of salvation. We are so grateful that you have exalted your son on high. Lord, as he left this earth, it can definitely leave feelings of apprehension, of nervousness. 
But Lord, you promised your spirit to the disciples. And your promises always are fulfilled. Lord, we have that same hope. We have that same confidence. But yet we struggle with anxiety, worries, and fears. So I pray that this week you would instill in us this hope that we saw today in the, in the disciples' lives, this joy that they have, where we can fully understand your will, your plans, to be witness to the Jerusalems, Judeas, Samarias, and the ends of the earth. Lord, I pray that you would give us the eyes to see the opportunities that are before us and that we take advantage of those. I pray that you empower us by your spirit to, to have your words and not our own. But Lord, that we can be faithful witnesses to you, not tweaking things, not trying to make things what they're, what they're not, but totally the truth. Lord, there's gonna be times that yes, we will mess up, that we'll make mistakes, but you correct us lovingly. Lord, help us to take those steps of faith. Help us to trust that you would give us the words to say when it matters most. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.